0: Hello, and welcome to a new episode of The Lee Show. As always, I am your host, Lee Bressler. I am here with special guest, Eric Rosen. Eric had a very accomplished career in financial services. He retired at a young age, and he publishes a substack that I really enjoy reading called The Rosen Report. Eric is an interesting guy. He uh, writes about and covers many topics, restaurants, current events, politics, uh, just a, a great observer of life, um, Eric. Maybe could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your career?
1: Well, first of all, thanks, Lee. I'm excited to be with you today. Uh, it's always good to speak with you. Yes, um, my name is Eric Rosen. I write uh, a blog called The Rosen Report on Substack, and was on Wall Street for approximately 30 years in various roles. I was at J.P. Morgan Chase for about 15 years, running the credit trading business. There, as well as uh, UBS, where I ran fixed income in the United States. And then I had my own hedge fund uh, from about 2012 to 2019, where it was a credit opportunities fund that invested in everything from bonds, loans, derivatives, post reorganized equities, and a host of other things as well. And I moved down to Florida a few years ago.
0: Thanks for that introduction. I'm interested to learn. About how, as someone working on Wall Street, what was it like to write every day? You know a, a lot of guys on Wall Street you don't normally think of as great writers. Um, in fact, that's a skill that's that's often missing, but you are prolific. you're publishing multiple times a week. You clearly must like doing it. you've been doing it for a long time. What's that like being a writer on wall street?
1: Well, it's interesting. I didn't always. Write maybe fifteen years ago, I started writing restaurant reviews that had a pretty good following. Before there was such really thing as a a blogger, I just did it via email. And in two thousand seven, I started getting very nervous about the world, and I wrote my views in a very short form to a handful of senior executives at the firm, and I started putting it out every day. And lo and behold, they would forward to somebody, and forward to somebody, and forward to somebody, and I had many, many thousands of of readers for my with the, what Jamie Dimon called my daily missive. And so I didn't start out as a writer and I didn't start out when I started doing On Wall Street as intending it to be anything more than giving my thoughts about why I didn't like the markets in July of 2007. And it became something more and something that, that was followed. And I just enjoyed doing it. And now that I'm no longer in New York City, I'm no longer working on Wall Street, it's a great mechanism for me to connect with a lot of people that I otherwise wouldn't connect with. I have a lot of big hedge fund managers and C-suite people on uh, Wall Street firms, as well as private equity and venture fund and real estate fund, as well as school teachers and college students. So it it reaches a a wide audience, but I think this is helping me stay relevant uh, with people that I might otherwise not be because I'm no longer seeing them every day in New York City.
0: You know, it's interesting. I I also love to write, um, and I found that I try to write my pieces, and I I tend to publish like twice a week, and I tend to write my pieces like an essay. I think back to like an eleventh grade essay where you say like, "Here's my thesis." Here's my points arguing in favor of it. Here's my counterpoint and my conclusion and it ties it all together. And, and that's what I always think back to is like Mrs. Abbey's 11th grade English class and learning how to write an essay that way. And it's, it, I always then contrast that with other people who tend to write more who, where it's just like, here's a paragraph, here's a different topic, here's a different paragraph. And that's, that's hard for me to do that. Like I can't get myself to write that way. I have to write these like detailed essays. It's like a compulsion. And then it's, it's hard to do um, what you do, which is just, you know, here's one thought, here's another thought. It's, it's not quite like tweets cause you're not, it's much longer form than tweets, but it's, they're not fully built out essays on each topic either. It's, it's an interesting format you're doing.
1: Well, it's funny because I used to write just like you, Lee. That's, that's the only way I knew how to write. And I'm not, a professional writer, in the sense that that's not what I went to school for. I wasn't an English major. And, I, you know, whenever I wrote a paper in college or in high school, it followed the form that you just outlined in, in your writing. And that's the only way I really knew how to write. And I think when I started writing these daily missives at JP Morgan, I didn't have the time. And I was trying to do stream of consciousness, very quick thoughts, and quick examples of what we were seeing in the market that was giving me pause. And so, I adopted a new form of writing, even though what I was schooled with for countless years uh, in business school, University of Chicago, or undergrad or high school, uh, was very different than what I was able to do. And I, just the time that I had to write, I couldn't write a formal story with a beginning, you know, introduction, right. three right. supporting whole paragraph. Thing. Yeah. yeah,
0: exactly. I didn't. It's have hard. That. It's hard. Um, I maybe I'm I'm just like too compulsive to be able to relax enough and just do that other format i've tried tweeting it's okay i mean there are people listening who follow me on twitter but i I never really felt super comfortable with that because i i feel like then i'm writing one sentence and where's the rest of the idea and it's it's hard for me to do that um but other people find it easy right and and there's an entire market of people who are building out a business now around this, around being content creators, and they're they're saying I I don't need to be centralized. I don't need to work for the New York Times. I have something to say. I can say it. I can find my own audience. It's like a you're a, you're a sovereign publisher then, right? You're not dependent on a, a, a central organization like the New York Times. You're not dependent on them giving you a job. You're not dependent on Twitter allowing you to be on the platform you just write and then the, your audience comes to you and that's it you you are a sovereign publisher on your own i think that's a really cool model that that's only going to to continue to grow
1: well i think you know i think things change and when i look at what we are today as a society versus what we were when i was a kid i'll be 52 this year and i think everybody's Uh, I would say attention span today is a lot shorter than it once was. We live in this instant gratification society where everything is summed up in a tweet or a quick blurb or two sentences or four sentences, and people don't take the time to write the way you're writing, which I really appreciate, but I think the audience – has a lot of shorter attention attention span. They've got a lot of things pulling at them. They've got their phone is now not only a communication device for, for voice, they could do movies with it. They're they're FaceTiming each other, Skyping each other, Zooming each other. They're able to tweet and Instagram and do all these other things. So I, I believe that people's attention span and desire to read long stories has gone down, even though it's, it's a shame that it's happened I just think you're competing against so many other uh, platforms and mechanisms so I, I write this way and then if you, if you don't like the bullet just skip that bullet and go to another bullet and so I try to summarize it with a with a table of contents. you say, oh I want to read those four, four passages and I want to read what's going on in real estate or you know I, I do open maybe my, my pieces a little bit more like yours in the sense I tell a personal story. Uh, my last one was about hoarders. Uh, you know, I, I tell a personal story that's a little bit more of a formal, but short piece that people seem to enjoy. But then the rest of it tends to be more bullet point and and shorter thoughts.
0: I uh, I mean, I can relate to the hoarding thing. My mother passed away about six years ago, and she was basically a hoarder. Um, I mean, it was just it was insane. When we were cleaning out her apartment after she passed away, there was on the top shelf of her closet a suitcase and it was so heavy that I had to get my brother to help me so that we could get it down from the top shelf. And I'm thinking, holy smokes, this is it. Like I, I bet it's filled with gold bars. This is gonna be amazing. And we opened the suitcase and it was filled with promotional tote bags. Like the the ones hmm. they give you at like a conference or something, those canvas tote bags. What do you do like- that? nothing nothing she just hoarded these for like 30 years it was just a suitcase full of promotional tote bags i mean it was just the craziest shit that we found in her in her bedroom i mean she had an entire drawer full of yarmulkes like hundreds mm. and hundreds of yarmulkes <laughs> from every bar mitzvah she ever went to and it's like what why though like you you don't need this many it's just not so i i i totally get what you're uh what you're talking about there um so you know you mentioned that you used to write restaurant reviews and I think about that a lot and I'm really interested to hear how you chose the restaurants you went to what what you enjoy eating what kind of restaurants like I know for me personally when I was well, actually when I worked at JP Morgan I I I liked going to like high end restaurants. I wanted to go to fancy restaurants. I wanted to track down Michelin stars. I wanted to, you know, I wanted that like gourmet experience. And then I just found number one, it got like a little boring and repetitive. And and number two, it's just so outrageously expensive that if anything goes wrong, you feel disappointed. Like you're not getting a good value there. And so like my culinary taste definitely changed. Tell me about you and like how how do you choose a restaurant? What's that like for you?
1: So it, it's it's varied over time. When I worked on Wall Street, let's call it pre-pandemic, you know, in the in the '90s and early 2000s, entertaining was such a big part of my job and. I ran a fairly large business and I would be pulled in so many directions. There were nights that I'd have three dinners. So I'd meet the first clients with salespeople for a drink and maybe an appetizer. I'd sit down for dinner with somebody else and then I'd have dessert and drinks you know, the third time. So I was bouncing around and t- was so fortunate to be able to go to all these restaurants. You're on an expense account. And although I never abused it, I would say pre-pandemic, you were able to entertain and order a nice bottle of wine and order nice food, and no one really questioned it as, after I should say, uh, pre-global financial crisis, not pandemic. And then after the global financial crisis, there was a much harder look from senior management and the expense and accounting departments about, very hard limits on how much you could spend per person and what you could order. And it got to one point where there were approved restaurants and there were approved wine lists and you were only allowed to order these certain things. And it it made it much different, but I I was able to eat at all these beautiful restaurants and it was largely on someone else's dime. On the weekends, I'd do my own thing, but um, it was so much entertaining. I got to try all these great places and not having grown up in New York City and being a foodie, there's just so many different places to go and experience from a food type, a quality, a price, a cost, a, whether you want Indian or Chinese or American or French or Italian, there's always something to try. And so I was really fortunate that I was able to try so many restaurants over my 20 plus years in New York City personally, and then through work and and events and, and entertaining clients or being entertained from time to time by clients. It was a really... Uh, fun and exciting experience and my kids got into it my son became a bit of a foodie and uh when we grew up it's an interesting
0: word foodie by the way like that used to be a thing there were some people who were foodies who were like really into food and they that was like a small portion of people and everyone else it was just i i just eat food and that's it it's like i don't really care about it and i feel like more and more people are are that now they're now foodies and are you know really into going to restaurants and and trying things and i i don't know why i my instinct is that it's because it's just an one of like the senses with which you can experience the world and you can do it in this way that is somehow more sophisticated like i'm in the know and i know about this place or i ate this thing and it was such a perfect bite and and you can instagram it so like maybe those are all contributing to it, but for sure, there's a lot more people now who are just like, yeah, I care about food. and and like, But you don't hear that word foodie as much anymore. That was like people who de- designated themselves as like, I really care about food.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And my son, when he was young, just really got into food and he was doing his own uh, homework and do, hey, dad, this new restaurant, open up, can we try it? And I remember for his 11th birthday, he always wanted to go to Le Bernardin, the famous French restaurant in New York City that has three Michelin stars and is largely considered one of the top five restaurants in New York City. It's not my favorite, but I took him there for his 11th birthday, and that was his 34th Michelin star. So by 11, my son had already had quite a few restaurants, and he would always ask the waiter what do you think I should get today whatever the chef recommends I want to try he was a very daring young man with food and I always enjoyed I always enjoyed his experience and his critiques and having having a different perspective and that kind of kept me involved in in food and and you mentioned earlier about all these fancy restaurants I don't think you have to spend a lot of money to get great food in New York City there are plenty right, you of don't places. have to go to La
0: Bernardin there's plenty of amazing restaurants without going to La Bernardin
1: and I like to find the ones that aren't ridiculously expensive that give you uh, good food and a, a fun vibe, a good experience without having to break the bank and, 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 and go. I don't like prefix dinners. I, I, that's a one-time-a-year, two-time-a-year experience right. for me. I just don't like to spend that much money on food. I, I, as you said earlier in the, in the show, I end up getting upset when the bill comes. And I say that was good, but it wasn't that good. And so I try and find places that are a little bit more reasonable.
0: Yeah, I I I totally get what you mean. I I just find it's a lot easier to enjoy yourself over um, an eleven dollar dish at a Tibetan restaurant than it is at the super fancy place. Um, You know, I just I I don't I don't take that. Or uh, I also think that that's like where the vanguard is now, right? It's no longer the best meal has to correlate with the most expensive meal. At some point in time, it did, but we've just, we've had an evolution, an evolution in what people want and what they care about and just how they want to eat. And, and it's, it's different now. It's not like the fancy restaurant anymore. Although there is a new place that just opened with a, a, in New York with a very well-known chef that does have a, a jacket and tie and it it like that's required of of the the gentleman um but does anyone say that anymore gentlemen like i don't know anyways um they have like a jacket and tie dress code and which it's, one very formal uh I, I gotta look i don't remember it's uh it sounded amazing um
1: i just went see. to Margerelle, which is in the lowell hotel on the upper east side Right. and it was a really nice meal i'd be shocked if they don't get a michelin star they just opened up as very good food very good service great wine selection more formal ambiance i don't know that a blazer was required i had a blazer on my son did not wear a blazer and i think he was the only person in the room without one and they didn't say anything but he kind of stood out we were traveling and he didn't bring a blazer with him but the food is 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 amazing that's a great thing about new york they have there's something for everyone in New York city. And I pride myself on trying to find those things that aren't so incredibly expensive, but you said something funny, Lee, about a, a blazer required for the gentleman. It, it brings me back to a story, you know, pre-crisis, everything in New York city was very, very formal. And if you went to a Cipriani, they made you wear a blazer. And I didn't know that at the time. And my wife and I had a, a, a couple other people came out a few couples and we had dinner at Cipriani on 59th Street. And I said to my wife, Do I need to wear a blazer? She goes, No, you're fine. And my wife was a celebrity stylist. She dressed stars for red carpet events, movie stars for red carpet events. And so I go in slacks and a a sweater and a dress shirt and I walk in, sit down. I'm the only person in the entire restaurant with a blazer and almost everyone has a tie. And the maitre d comes over and he said, Sir, perhaps you'd be more comfortable in this. And he was, hovering over me with Shaquille O'Neal's polyester blazer with gold buttons uh, uh. and I said I think no, by the way
0: that they did that all these places would do that intentionally like they would have one to lend you but it would be enormous just to fuck with you
1: well it was really frustrating I said no I'm good he goes sir perhaps you'd be more comfortable in this and everybody at the table's laughing I put this monstrosity on and it looked like I was nine wearing my father's blazer and I had I was ordering soup and I couldn't eat the soup because the sleeves of the gigantic blazer kept, you know, rolling into the soup. And we all got a good laugh at it. And that was probably 2006 or seven, right before the crisis. If you go to Cipriani today, there are people in shorts and tank tops. And there's no, they were so struggling for, for patrons that they threw their dress code aside. And now these millennials go in places, which kind of offends me. I'm not, I don't want to wear a blazer. But I don't think it's appropriate to wear shorts and tank top and flip flops to a to a nicer restaurant. If you want to go to McDonald's, I'm fine. But if you're going to go to a more formal establishment, at least have a nice pair of jeans on and a and a decent shirt or a skirt or whatever whatever you're going to wear. I just don't think you should be in a, a bikini if you're a young lady, and I don't think you should be in uh, shorts and but a tank an top. here's an interesting your thing: man.
0: you said you should you said wear that to McDonald's and. What I would say is there's something in between, right? There is an informal restaurant, but that it, the food is still great. So there's there's you can find you don't need it's not it's not McDonald's or La Bernadette. There's like this 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 genre that I think is the most interesting one, which is informal without being without being um expensive, but the food is still is still great. But I'm curious about this. If you if you imagine 10 years from now somebody's like i'm a foodie what are, what are they doing what what's the cuisine they're pursuing what is the state of the art in 10 years from now do we go back to the la bournadan types do we have certain regions of the world like what what becomes state of the art in in 10 years in i want the best eating experience that there is I
1: think it's it's a lot of different things. And obviously, good food has got to be at the top of the list. But I think it's about ambiance and feel and the music that's played and the service and the room decor and the vibe of of the place. There's a great, uh, not expensive place in New York City. It's not a Michelin star restaurant. It's called Lasquina. It's on Kenmare. I think it's yeah, just. Yeah, sure. It's I know the place. Yeah. It's around a basement
0: no. and they have that yep. old. Yeah, sure. But you know so it's that great. is
1: that place is such a cool vibe, and there's pretty people, and the food is good. It's not remarkable, but it's good. It's not inexpensive, but it's not offensive. Right. And they have good drinks. I think they have a couple hundred kinds of tequila there, and it just is a fun place. And when I go out to dinner. I generally want to have fun. I, I don't really want to wear a suit and tie and right, sure. feel that I'm uh, I feel embarrassed if I mispronounce something. I I just I don't really want to put myself through that, and I don't want to spend three or four or five hundred dollars a person to get a good meal. And I don't think you have to. And I think the ambiance and the feel. Are getting more and more important. I like live music, a place that plays music I, I really enjoy, or at least in the background is playing music over the speakers. That's that's fun. I think that adds to it as long as it's not too loud. Uh, and I want to have a good conversation with the people and do some people watching and enjoy some nice food, maybe have a good drink. And that's what I'm looking for, for a great experience. I think that's what people want. I just don't think that formal experience suit and tie where a waiter comes over to tuxedo and is presidential service. I just think that is a rare, special occasion event, and people don't need it. I just don't think you need that anymore.
0: Yep, makes sense to me. Um, What's your okay. favorite restaurant in New York City? Where do you like to eat? Oh, that's a good question. So, I, when my daughter was born, I started this thing with her. Um, where I, look, I grew up in New York, but like I grew up very, very sheltered. I did not travel anywhere other than like my apartment and uh, and school and my grandparents' apartment. And um, and I swore when my daughter was born that I was she was going to have a different experience, and we would explore New York City a lot. And so it started every Sunday, just going for dinner, and using th- that as an excuse to explore different cuisines and to explore different neighborhoods. And um, and we you know we did it like we we would go to uh, Thai restaurants, Indian restaurants, Vietnamese like just finding amazing food everywhere we could. And so let's see, I would say my favorite Thai place is Ayada in uh, in Queens. Um, I think my favorite Vietnamese is Bunker. Um, although for some reason I like couldn't keep the name in my head and I kept thinking it was called Dumpster. And then I was like, there's no way there's a restaurant called Dumpster. That would be like the worst possible name for a restaurant. Um, my, uh, my favorite uh, sushi in New York, if we're going like, Super high-end sushi. Uh, I would say Kanoyama and uh, and Kosaka both are, are really quite incredible places. Um, I don't I don't do that kind of fancy stuff much anymore, uh, but but definitely love those. Um, I used to go to Kanoyama by myself sometimes, like I don't know, fifteen years ago or more. I'd go there by myself with a book and I'd sit there and, and, um, Nobu-san, the, uh, sushi chef and owner of the place would be at the counter. And I'd just be like, Nobu, my man, feed me until I say uncle. And he would just keep making like one piece after the next. And then I would just stuff myself. I mean, it was really like vile how much I would eat. Of, of this stuff, but it was, it was so delicious. I would just keep going and going. Um, so that was, uh, that was always a fun one. But
1: those are amazing experiences to have with, with, with your daughter and oh, trying totally. new, new cuisines. Totally. And that's the great thing about a place like New York city. I think it's true of San Francisco, Chicago, LA, you know, some of these big cities that have really, really good food. And, um, I, you I can't the same. do that
0: elsewhere. It's like one of those things, if you, if you leave New York, it's harder to do that. And and to have that experience because you don't have that variety of restaurants and cuisines to explore.
1: Well, it's funny. I lived in various places in the city, and at one point, I lived in the village, which was my favorite place of for food and just hip and uh, things to do and young people. And I moved to the Upper East Side, and the Upper East Side is largely a culinary wasteland. There's very few restaurants that I would ever go to on the Upper East Side. Uh, You got to really go below Twenty Fourth Street or Fourteenth Street to find the the good hip interesting cuisines. There's a few things on 59th. I like Marea. It's always a good, a good meal there. Oh my God. That
0: that, that lobster with the uh, mozzarella, that whole, I don't remember what they call it, astiche or something. That was incredible,
1: that dish. They have great crudo. They have great yeah. pasta. They, oh, yeah. they have a bone marrow pasta, which is just off the charts. It sounds something like I wouldn't get and I tried it and it's amazing. But going downtown was always great for me once I lived uptown. And then I moved to South Florida, which makes the Upper East Side look like, you know, a Mecca of food. Because now in Miami there's a handful of of pretty good restaurants. But if you're out of Miami, it is pretty darn weak. And I live in a place called Boca Raton, which I would say it's almost impossible to go out and have a really good meal. It's it's marginal. You get upset, you pay too much money for wine and food, and you leave with a bad meal and you eat with more people who are blue hairs with walkers, canes, and oxygen tanks than than you care to. It's definitely a very different crowd. I just went to Via Carada with my son a few weeks ago in New York City, and we sat outside with the hippest, coolest people in the, in the West Village you could imagine, and had a great meal and, and a that good place time. Is amazing!
0: I'm a food is fantastic. Big great. You know, it's funny you mentioned Miami. Like Tim Dillon did this bit uh, where he talks about how like Miami is a wasteland and how um, there's no. There's no industry in Miami. It's like the only industry in Miami is renting jet skis, and Miami is a city for uh, uh, drug dealers to swim in pools and for athletes to drive Lamborghinis and beat their girlfriends. And and yeah, he's I don't know. He's kind of right. Like it's a fun place to visit. I there's a ton of people moving there. I, I don't think know, that's changed. I think that. Oh
1: yeah. I mean, really? you have uh, you know Barry Stern, like the famous uh, real estate entrepreneur and businessman who's a billionaire moved down four or five years ago. And he's opening up a building that I think opens up later this year. It's fully leased to large multifamily offices. Big, very wealthy families are moving down here. A lot of tech is coming down here. Goldman Sachs has got hundreds and hundreds of investment bank employees moving down here. Uh, a lot of hedge funds have, have started coming down. So I think what what Miami was in the 80s or 90s is very different than different what Miami now, is. And, just, I, and I don't think of,
0: of COVID and a lot of people moved down and now they're just like, let's let's just live here and this is fine now.
1: I think it's been a multi-stage process, Lee. I think first it was four or five years ago, pre-COVID, the taxes in in high tax states like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Illinois, California. Then it became... Uh, with, with with the crime and the homelessness in New York City and other cities, it it started pushing people out, and then I think COVID really tipped the scales. And I think the biggest long term impact from COVID is going to be work from home, work from anywhere, and there's more and more people able to have flexibility. I, I read something that. 43 or 45% of people are considering leaving their jobs over the next year if they don't have the ability to have a more flexible work arrangement was the single biggest driving force and I think covid changed the game real estate has doubled tripled quadrupled especially at the high end in the last few years in Miami and people are coming down and when I tell you it's it's different the the quality and caliber of people down here is much different in the four years since I moved, it's it's it, it it it's night and day.
0: I mean, I'll, I'll I'll take you for your word on it. It's um, I don't know. I've found in the past that I love going to Utah, and I've always thought to myself, like, wow, it would be so cool to go to live in Utah or something. But people are fucking stupid. I mean, like, really, everybody I encounter seems stupid. And then sometimes I go to Florida, and I'm like, wow, people are kind of dumb here, and I don't. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being harsh, but well, well there's a famous like it, there's it, a famous
1: uh, website called The Florida Man, which yeah, gives I've really heard of f- that. funny examples of the stupidity of some of these people in but Florida. I mean, do- that, like
0: you go, you go to the the Starbucks, and like the the person working at the Starbucks is just like for sure twenty IQ points lower than like the person at the Starbucks in New York. And I, I think there's
1: I, some I, truth to that, but I think it's changing. I think if you saw the caliber of and wealth of the people moving to South Florida from Palm Beach to Miami, right? senior executives from BlackRock and Blackstone and Goldman Sachs and JP, big power, big hedge fund managers, big private equity folks, big tech people,
0: executives from Google. And so you think they're going to be so demanding that what comes up around them is going to be better or more efficient and effective and just like that that that's gonna cr- you're, you're starting to see look it. at
1: the restaurants major food group who owns a bunch of places at Car- right. carbone in new york guys, and yeah. and they took over the four seasons restaurant and they have the pool and the grill room there and they have uh, the lobster place they have all these restaurants in New York, they opened up multiple restaurants in South Florida. In Miami, they opened up a Carbone and another one. And in Boca, they just opened up Flamingo Grill a few weeks ago. So you're starting to see... uh, El Molino opened up in Boca. Now, it's not the same experience that you get downtown at El Molino or even on the Upper East Side of El Molino, but um, there's an El Molino here. So I think you're starting to see, given the wealth and the demand that you articulated from new yorkers and people from the tri-state and chicago and san francisco that are accustomed to better quality food experiences i think south florida has historically really lacked that uh i, I went to joe stonecrap which i go maybe once a year it's, it's so good it's,
0: it's outrageously expensive like you go it there is. 90 bucks later you've eaten a quarter of a meal and then you're like all right fuck it i guess i'm here i might as well do it again so you have another 90 bucks worth of crab claws it's expensive don't feel like an asshole for yeah.
1: lunch, they have this great to-go section that you can oh my get. God, that um, almost,
0: that, I, I never even go to the, the fancy place. Like you just go to the Joe's, the the next door place. Yeah. And it's, it's, that's a great setup they got there.
1: Yeah. So I, I was down there. I, I had to meet somebody for a meeting and I said, well, what, well, Hey, I'm down here. I'm going to pop over to Joe's for lunch. And I had a really good meal and I brought it outside and sat on a bench and ate stone crab claws, which, which, which were, which are very, very good. So I think there's, there's some places to go and there's some new places. Carbon to open up, uh, you know a few other ones, Milos, which is a great Greek so it's restaurant in New City. interesting! All these places
0: you're naming, other than Joe's, which is obviously a native South Florida thing, these are these are offshoots of New York City places. They're not right? all. I mean, there's
1: you've you got Prime One One Two, Casa Tua, a few, You know, they, they, yeah. there's a bunch of places, but yeah, there's a lot of them. But they, think about it: the patrons are from the mid, they're from right. the tri-state. They, like they know they're it, on. they they, they like it, it. Yep. and you know, they they come down. So. I think it listen, I will never be disingenuous and suggest that South Florida food is anywhere it's not it's an unfair comparison. I play golf, and Tiger Woods plays golf. We're both golfers that's where the right. comparison ends. There are restaurants in South Florida, and there are restaurants in New York City. that's where the comparison ends i mean you will they will never be the quality and the the quantity. In New York City, at any time of the day, you can go out for French or Italian or American or Hindu or whatever, whatever kind of food you want to get, and you can get it. In Florida, that's not going to happen. But I do think that we've seen some strides over the last three or four years, especially with all the influx of, of people from tri-state Chicago, California, that are really looking for better experience. So it's gotten better, but it's got a long way to go, in my opinion.
0: You think people stay? You think for the most part, people are like, I I like it. I like the pace of life here. The schools are good enough and and people stay. Or do you think the pendulum swings back and they're like, I'm out. I'm moving back to New York. Like how of, of the let's 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 make a prediction around it. Like of the the total number of people who moved to Florida over the last 18 months from New York, what percentage do you think stay and become long term Florida residents?
1: If they don't, I don't know what's wrong with them. I've been here four years and my wife grew up in New York City. She went to college at Barnard in New York City. She went to high school at Riverdale. She is as diehard of a New Yorker as it comes. Her family lives there. I got to tell you, once you move to Florida, the quality of life, cost of living, weather, taxes is so good you can't compare. Now, we also got a little, we were fortunate in that we moved four years ago before the prices of real estate have escalated so much. But I only know one person who is moving back. And I guess if you're really a diehard New Yorker, maybe you go back. But for me, it would take something miraculous to get me to move back to New York, pay those taxes, spend that much money to live. I was spending $1,200 to park my car in New York City. I have a four-car garage now. Uh, Like The quality of life, cost of living, weather taxes wins by so much. I spend about 60% of what I spent in New York City, not including the tax effects or the dollars I took out when I sold my apartment versus bought my house. And I have a boat. I have two cars. I'm a member of multiple clubs. Like I didn't have all that in New York. So I live, and my house is twice the size of my apartment, not including the four car garage. And so you live such a better quality of life. And now you can work from anywhere with Zoom and FaceTime and and Skype and all these things.
0: Right. I mean, I look, we're, means- we're recording this interview remotely, right? We're, we're, we're a thousand miles apart from each other. We're still having a full conversation and it sounds great. I, I hope it sounds great, but you know, it, it, you don't need to be together in the summer. I way just
1: far. don't think you can be. I, I spoke to a, a senior person at a major investment bank and I bumped into him this summer. And I said, is it true that you're moving to Florida? He said, well, my kids are enrolled in school in Florida. I'll be commuting. And it was not the kind of job that pre-crisis or pre-pandemic you would ever ever have thought possible to commute to that job. It couldn't be done. And now it's done and it's at a major investment bank. And I think that is going to be more the norm. And I think I, I talked about work from home becoming more prevalent and quality. I, I believe that this pandemic has changed people's perspective. I have probably helped 70 to 100 families move from the tri-state to f- Somewhere in Florida, I educate them about schools, about w- communities to live in, if they like to golf, where they want to might join golf courses, uh, and, and, and help them in their social network meet, meeting with people. And I have not not one person that I've helped move down has said anything other than "I can't believe I didn't do this earlier." The quality of life here is amazing. I'm not saying there's not been any. Transitional problems where there's a few period, a, a, a period of a few months where they're missing something or they're they're questioning it. Once they settle in and they make a, a network of a social network, I have not one person that wants to move back that I, that I've helped move down here in the last
0: few years. Not one. I I did a podcast about the concept of the metaverse, and um, interestingly, it was the least listened to episode that I've done despite a lot of people saying like, can you do a a requesting it and asking me to do an episode about the metaverse. And I was thinking about, you have this like virtual universe where um, universes plural, like you could imagine that there is a, a virtual universe where you go and here's like your office and it's a virtual office and you meet with people in a room. Like imagine it as a room and then here's like another virtual room and that's your living room and that's where you have social engagements. And you could imagine there's like some version of it where it's almost like virtual reality, right? Where you are almost immersed in it, but without those stupid fucking goggles because those are, are terrible and they mess up your hair and they hurt your head and they make you dizzy and everything. But I could imagine that this is a thing that's going to happen, that it's not just staring at Zoom on a screen, but it is something more immersive, that there is like a, a virtual room that we are in, that we decorate, that we make it look how we want, and we have meetings there. And that is how you will start to... I'm not saying it's happening tomorrow, but that's the direction of it. And Mark Zuckerberg did this whole... This whole thing where he, uh, I don't remember who it was, was with, with Gail, with Oprah, with like somebody he was, he was showing off like the, these goggles and they're they're so dumb. That's not, I don't think these goggles are going to work. Uh, I, they're, they're very overrated, but I, I really believe that if we can get that to work and we can get that immersive meeting experience to work, then we're much more likely to have a a, a really great um, virtual experience, and people are just going to say, "I don't need to connect where I live with where I work, and I'm going to go live in in Wyoming or Florida or whatever, and I don't care about being in New York City anymore." And,
1: well, and- I can tell you this: I think you're closer than you would like to believe into some of the technology that would take you to this alternate universe that you that you speak of. I've invested in some of these technology companies and some of what they're doing is just remarkable uh, with respect to augmented and virtual reality. And a lot of people they're not necessarily moving to Florida. Look at what's happening in Texas. Look what's happening in Wyoming. Look, Austin, Texas, the, the value of real estate in Austin, Texas is, is tripled, and the, the the real estate experts are saying that's going to be the number one market over the next year in terms of price appreciation, and a lot of the people are moving from California due to taxes and the political environment. Is Austin environment. a real
0: place, though? So like, Austin is... It is. It's like seven square blocks downtown, and there's horrible traffic and then there's just like a million people with purple hair riding a unicycle and busking and it's just like and they're all like ah oh, come to my favorite breakfast taco place and you're like i, I enough i don't care about the breakfast so, so the traffic in new york on. city
1: is is fun there's i don't no know. Traffic the traffic
0: traffic's actually gotten a lot less bad it's i don't know if it was covid and people moving out of town or what but it it it's not bad anymore it was horrible pre-COVID, and now it's, it seems to have abated, but I don't know well, how long that persists for. Well, I
1: can tell you this summer, I had to drive my son from the Hamptons to Pennsylvania for a golf tournament, and I made the mistake of following ways. And I went through the Midtown Tunnel, and we had to leave Oof. through the-, uh,
0: through, the uh, through the Lincoln Tunnel. The Holland Tunnel, yeah. through oh, the Holland Tunnel.
1: Yeah. Oh. So it's only three or four miles from the Midtown Tunnel to the Holland Tunnel. It was a Saturday morning at 10. It took an hour and 25 minutes to get through right. the city. Yeah, so you, when you, you say, can say never traffic,
0: follow that shit. That's a disaster. It, but, but, by
1: the way, this was a Saturday morning in right. the middle of the summer when the city is relatively dead. So when you say traffic's gotten be- better, I, I, I don't know. The little I was in New York City this summer, yeah,
0: you didn't. You didn't
1: catch it. Already. I didn't. I didn't catch that day. I haven't been to Austin, Texas, in many years, but I've spoken with m- number of people actually. Uh, a reader friend of mine who reads Rosen Report spent a month out there over the summer, and they said, hey, his he and his wife are professionals. They have big jobs, in, uh, one at a hedge fund and one on Wall Street, and they said, we would love to move to Austin, and these are well-educated people who live in Manhattan, and they, they feel like Austin was amazing. Now, I haven't been there in years, but it's got great food, good music scene, and a lot of real people are moving there. I mean, there are houses in Austin, Texas for 10 million plus. I would have yes, not thought that was possible. I
0: mean, I get it. Elon Musk moved there and, and Sandra Bullock and, and Joe Rogan and whatever. I don't know. Uh, and then people are like, but you got to try the barbecue. And then you go to the barbecue place and they got like the picnic benches and, and you eat a plate of barbecue and then you feel like you're burping up a Duraflame log afterwards. <laughs> I, so, I, so, sounds okay. like
1: you need some Pylosec.
0: Yeah, I know exactly. So, so I'm going to make a, uh, a call on this I am shorting Austin right now. I'm I'm neutral on Miami. I'm definitely not shorting Miami, but I'm shorting Austin right now. I'm I'm calling the top in Austin.
1: Well, what I'd say is I just think that as people realize that there're alternatives for where they work physically and they a lot more employees or I should say a lot more employers are, are being flexible. And you saw Square and all these tech companies in California said, you can move wherever you want. And I feel uh, that as more of that takes hold, I, I believe you're going to see people leaving places like New York City, New Jersey, Connecticut, Chicago, San Francisco, quality of life. Well, San Francisco,
0: look, I, I did an entire episode. In fact, my most listened to episode was one that i did all about how california has turned into a fucking hellhole and it is because of just horrific governance in california it's the the crime policy the prosecution policy you just have um terrible governance from the governor on down the district attorneys the mayors and it's it's a disaster and san francisco and los angeles have turned into like unlivable places with these tent cities and who the fuck wants that right like that's not nice for absolutely anybody to uh, to experience. You know, it's interesting when when Giuliani was mayor in New York back in the '90s. Do you know how he dealt with all of the homeless in New York? Are you? Or do you? I'm, I'm curious. Do you know how he did it?
1: Well, I know that there was a big homeless problem in Union Station and he went in and got them out of there because there was such a negative feel when people were coming and they put a they put a police precinct in the train station uh you know to 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 get them in Penn Station rather to get to 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 really solve the homeless crisis there and I think he did a very good job now Yes so so you, you
0: want to know how he did it though? It's it's amazing he bust them out of New York. So he would round up the homeless people and he'd tell them, I'm giving you a bus ticket and um, there's $500 waiting for you at the Western Union office in Seattle. Here's a bus that goes directly from New York to Seattle. And so as long as you make it all the way there, there's 500 bucks for you. And people would do it. They'd go, all right, five, 500 bucks. That sounds great. Seattle seems fine. And then they just go there. And then once you're there, you're like, all right, New York's far away. I'm not coming back. And so he just bust tens of thousands of homeless people out of New York, gave them 500 bucks each, and that was how he he dealt with the problem. And it, it was it was pretty effective. It's not not like super kind and 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 magnanimous, but like it was pretty effective. And look at the Renaissance that New York has had over the last 25 30 years since he's he started doing that. Like it, it worked.
1: But I think it's a combination of things, and I think. Giuliani did a lot of things well. I think Mayor Bloomberg was a remarkable three-term mayor, right. and then right. we got De Blasio. And I'm not here to talk about left or right,
0: but I yeah, don't. But he's speak an idiot. It. De Blasio is a, a fucking lazy idiot, right? Like uh, De Blasio. That's what everyone calls him, De Lazio, because he's whoa. so bad. And it's not a left or right thing. It's just he's he's incompetent.
1: I think it's very hard to find anybody who lives in New York City who thinks De Blasio has done a good job for New York City. From a right. homelessness perspective, uh, f- f- from a crime perspective, from a filth perspective, the quality of life in New York City is not what it once was. Right. And I feel that's what's helping to drive. There's pictures that get sent around to Florida. It says the number one real estate broker in the state of Florida. And it's a picture of de Blasio or de Blasio and Cuomo. And it's kind of funny. And so – I, I think when you have failed policies and, I, I, and it, it, it's, it, this is brings something back to what you said earlier. Lee. You said I don't want to go to a restaurant and spend four or five hundred dollars and feel guilty and not feel like I've been fulfilled. And I say the same thing about our politicians. If you want to charge a premium, you better give me a Premium experience, and if we're talking about a restaurant, I mean great food, great service, great ambiance. I, I, if I'm going to spend three or four or five hundred dollars a person, I better feel good about it. And the same thing about New York City don't give me crappy service, crime, homelessness, filth with really high taxes and a high cost of living. You're right,
0: people make have a premium experience. If Do you're it? It? like, listen,
1: totally. uh, uh, this summer I had to travel quite a bit for golf for my son and unfortunately where we went there was no such thing as a fancy hotel but I knew what I was getting into when I spend a hundred dollars a night on a hotel I don't expect an Amon gone a four seasons or Ritz experience I, I I just don't expect that right. but if and, I'm spending I, probably, I
0: think that's really good for your mental state like when your expectations are lower it's a lot easier to enjoy the experience I find than it is when your expectations are so high that you can't Because you're constantly looking for, this has to be perfect and anything less than that, you're going to be disappointed.
1: But I think that sums up life, Lee. I think expectations management and whether you're talking about a restaurant or moving to a new city or a relationship with uh, going on a first date with somebody, what was your expectation going into it? And I think far too often people have too high expectations and they're disappointed when I, I like to golf and when I golf on the range and I'm hitting the ball great on the range, I go into the golf round going, I'm going to play great today. And I have these high expectations and then I never seem to meet them. When I have a really bad ra- practice session on the range, I play amazing. My ra- I have no expectation. I'm going to play like junk today. And then I go out there. I don't have expectations. I'm not putting pressure on myself and I have a great day. And I think that's true of life. And I think when you have really, really high expectations, generally you're right, disappointed. Do you, you watch I think this that-
0: show, The White Lotus, that's on HBO right now? No, I've never seen it. Uh, it's really good. It's um, it's just it's a six episode story, and it's about um, this very high end resort in Hawaii, and all the guests there, and the manager of the hotel, and like how they all sort of interact with each other, and all the, you know, when you go to one of these fancy Hawaiian resorts, there's like the honeymoon couple. And there's you know the family with like the spoiled kids, and there's the, there's the the single lady who's like half nuts and in her fifties, and she's there to dump her mother's ashes, and like there's all kinds of like goofballs at this place, and and you you just see how this works, and it just as like a a, a sociological study, this show works very well. I mean, it happens to be great writing. I enjoyed it a lot, but it just it works really well for understanding this strange little universe. And one of the guys, this guy's on his honeymoon, and his expectations, he's clearly like a spoiled douche, but his expectations are so high that when he doesn't get the the specific suite that he wanted, he flips out and cannot enjoy the trip because his expectations are so high.
1: Well, I, I have a great story. I, I grew up with very limited means as a, as a kid, and I never took a fancy vacation in my life. Um, I didn't go to Europe until I was almost 19 years old. And, uh, and on my honeymoon, my wife had traveled to Europe when she was younger, and she really wanted to stay at this hotel in Sardinia on our honeymoon called the Cala de Volpe. Now, I had never been there and didn't know anything about it. And I booked the room, and this is now 17 years ago. I almost had a meltdown. It was so expensive. And I was like, oh my God, I can't. This thing, this better be this better be the Taj Mahal. We get there and it was nice. I check into the room and I walk back down to the lobby and I said, there's got to be a mistake. There is no way I am possibly being charged this much money for a room this small. It's It's just impossible. And I was so upset with the four nights we stayed in that hotel that they charged you. Now, again, it was nice, but it wasn't that nice that they could charge you that much money. And I did not, that was part of my honeymoon that I did really not enjoy.
0: Experience. Yeah.
1: I was not sleeping for the wrong reasons. I was not sleeping on my honeymoon because I was <laughs> pissed that I was spending so much money at a hotel that it, like, I would not go back to that hotel unless they gave me a free night. Uh, there's no chance I'm going back there. It's just too expensive. Right. And it's just like, I, I don't, I just don't, you're not in the room very much anyway. Like right. you know, like how much do you need to spend a night? So this summer I did the exact opposite when we were traveling in the middle of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. There, you know, it's between Days Inn, Motel Six, Holiday Inn Express, Comfort Inn, and Spring Hill Suites and Homewood Suites. So we found a lot of uh, of dives because that's all there was. But I I didn't like them. But for eighty to a well, hundred twenty five dollars a night, yeah. it's like whatever. You know, right. um, but if you're going to spend some insane amount of money, you better make it a really, really, really incredible experience. In my opinion, I think that's true of of of, of everything, whether it's a hotel or a restaurant or any other leisure luxury item you're going to do. It better be it better be good if you're going to charge one, a payment.
0: One of my brothers always said that um, some people, like in the high end segment, some people travel to recreate the comforts of home wherever they go like they go to a very high-end place and then they expect to have the exact same high thread count sheets that they had and the perfect bathrobe and they uh, they want everything to be just like at home but somewhere else and then some people just travel to have an experience and they're sort of indifferent to that right they they may go to a high-end place but whatever it is it is what it is they're there to experience the the location whether it's a a beach or a city or, 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 you know, a a resort of some kind. And I, I think that there's a bit of a generational divide there. Like older people want to have that, that I experience the comforts of home wherever I go. And I bring all of that with me. That seems very boring to me, but some people do it.
1: Yeah. You know, to to each his own. I, I, you know, if I'm doing something special, I get it. But when I travel, I'm not – I sleep in the hotel. I don't – I mean you're
0: – not, You're not spending time there, so who cares?
1: I'm not really spending yeah. time. So I, I'm a pretty frugal guy. I've been fortunate professionally and I retired early, but I like to brag about how much money I save, not how much right. money I spend. Yeah, like, you, know, you, if, you, don't
0: get, you don't get rich wasting money. That, that's, it's it's, it's funny. Yeah.
1: I, I, I like wine and I, I, um, I drink wine and I'll go, I'll go out with friends running. And there's these people like, oh, I bought this $700 bottle of wine. I'm like, let me be crystal clear. I don't know what it's going to take for me to spend $700 a bottle of wine, but I, I have wine that's that much money because I bought it 30 years ago and it appreciated in value. But I would much rather have wine that I found for 50 bucks or 70 bucks that I really enjoy or 100 bucks than spending a ton. And so to me, I, I try to be really mindful about how I spend money. And back to your point about restaurants, I don't enjoy spending $400 a person on, on a meal, and I don't generally leave there feeling great about it. I do think that margarelle dinner, I think it was, I think there was two prefix options, 125 and 175, and I thought it was very, very good and something I would absolutely do again. But per se, and some of these crazy restaurants, uh, La Bernadette, I, I leave upset. And I yeah.
0: don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't leave happy. You do not leave happy. You I know, leave um, happy
1: when I have a great meal and I don't spend a ton of money and I had right. good service and I had value. a good time. You
0: care, people care about value, of yeah. course. Um, you, you ever go to a hotel... Where um, people can like leave their shoes outside of their room overnight, and then someone like comes and like shines their shoes. I think this is like a much more old school thing, but it, it, it exists still. I imagine. I
1: haven't seen that in in years. In a long time, uh, right? Years, uh, years. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I mean, I, I vaguely recall that you know a long, long time ago, but I, I don't. Uh, yeah, you know, I, a, it's I, an
0: old school thing. So, so my grand, my my grandmother and her three sisters. They um, fled Nazi Germany and went to a refugee camp in Holland uh, in the 1930s, uh, late late 1930s, and they went to this refugee camp. And there were lots of other German refugees there. And when they would arrive, they didn't quite get that this was like a refugee camp. They sort of thought it was like a hotel. And there were a lot of men who would, you know, they they, they came from wealthy wealthy er families in Germany. And they would arrive, and they'd leave their shoes outside of <laughs> where they were staying in the in the refugee camp at night, thinking that they were going to get their shoes shined, uh, which just you know that that's just not a thing that that happens anymore. Um, but but I was thinking about that. Eric, this has been great. Thanks for joining me today. We're going to release the second part of this interview later on. Uh, for now, you can find Eric's newsletter at ericrosen.substack.com. I recommend you subscribe. Uh, and as always, you can find me on Instagram at the Lee Show Podcast, on Twitter, on Substack, Uh, Your support is crucial. Please share this widely. Please remember to subscribe. Thanks again for listening. And I look forward to joining you again soon.